Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and today I am thrilled to have Ed DaCosta with us. He's one of the most engaging executive coaches of our time. Whether working with entrepreneurial companies or Fortune 500 corporations, Ed delivers results. He's a global speaker who has shared the stage with the likes of Dr. John Maxwell, Paul Martinelli, Darren Hardy, Les Brown, Nick Vujicic, and many more. He's an acclaimed author whose books include Ascend and Release Your Superhero. Ed has changed countless lives as the developer and publisher of the global online personal development training program, Ascend On Demand. He's a force on social media with hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. He is the host of a long-standing weekly coaching blog and is also the star of the weekly YouTube show, Get Edified. Ed is on staff with the John Maxwell team and is one of my mentors. So welcome, Ed DeCosta. How are you? I'm doing very well, Lily. How are you doing today? Doing well. We are so happy to have you on our podcast. As you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So are you ready to pour into our listeners? Absolutely. I'm excited to be on with you and your listeners. Ed, I'm super excited because not only are we connected with the John Maxwell team, which is a premier leadership development organization, but you are one of the key mentors of the organization. That's awesome. It's been one of the pleasures of my life to partner and team <laughs> with John, for sure. And most importantly, you're a new grandfather, right? Yes. Yes, yes I am. Really, <laughs> you put a big smile on my face. You can probably hear it over the phone. You can hear it a thousand times from people you know how magical and wonderful it is to become a parent, obviously, and also to become a grandparent. And I can tell you, as of three weeks ago, I became a grandfather, and it is just a magical, wonderful, blessed feeling. Oh, that's great. And I know you're super busy, so let's get to it. Terrific. Ed, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership? Oh, my goodness. Sure. My path to leadership has not been a straight path. It's been a pretty circuitous path. I think like most people, uh, there have been uh, opportunities and experiences that I cherish, opportunities to see people that were doing very heroic things, that were leading uh, selflessly, that were giving to other people in a very generous way to the point where even as a boy, I picked up on it and I realized, well, this is a really giving person. This is a nice person. And mm -hmm. again, I think like most people, I've also had my share of experiences where I've seen people that behaved in ways that I did not like. Uh, one of my right. first bosses clearly was very critical of others, really of everyone but himself. Yeah. And it became pretty obvious that everyone in the organization, everyone in the group thought one way about this man except him. He just thought that he was 
the Michael Jordan or the LeBron James of the organization when he was anything but. And the reason I mentioned is not to criticize the man because in the long run, I'm grateful for the experience. Just because you've had some success, just because you've done a few things right and overcome some mm-hmm. challenges, those are wonderful things to have you know, in your mind and in your heart. But don't confuse those successes with this notion that you are, as they say, God's gift to the universe and that mm. somehow your opinion is more important mm. and more accurate than anyone else's. As you were talking, I was thinking about someone I worked with not so long ago, and what it really ignited me to do is to learn more about leadership because I don't want to do the things that he was doing. So thank you for that. Now, how would you describe your leadership style? Yeah, my leadership style is, I think, captured by the word chip. I grew up in an area where, again, lots of other people have grown up Mm -hmm. in areas where it wasn't uncommon for a young person to have a chip on your shoulder. Not that you necessarily were a violent person, but you had to behave, put it this way, it was described that you either looked like someone who was a victim or you didn't look like a victim. And the best advice was to not look like a victim because if you looked like a victim, someone was going to victimize you. And so you end up behaving in a way like you're a tough guy. Even though I, you know, I wasn't a criminal, I didn't bother people, I didn't cause fights or what have you, but you end up walking around with this so-called chip on your shoulder. And so for me now, the word CHIP is an acronym standing for candor, humor, insight, and passion. And the most mm. important is the last one, is the passion. Yeah, I'm very enthusiastic. I have essentially one of two opinions on almost everything. I either love it or I don't care about it at all. You know, the most things that are going on in the world, I don't care about, Lily. I just don't pay much attention to them, and they don't have any impact on my life, and I'm not going to worry about it. But if it's something that's inside of that circle of influence or control, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to be passionate about it. And so most people tell me that that's how I've led them, that my enthusiasm or passion for a particular subject or project has inspired them to have not necessarily the same opinion, but Mm -hmm. to have passion about their opinion. So while you've given a whole new meaning to chip on your shoulder, so I love it. And which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Wow, that's a great question. Well, obviously a number of John Maxwell come to mind. The one that he said over and over again, if you won't follow yourself, why should anyone else follow you. He's challenging people to practice what you preach. We've all heard that phrase, practice what you preach. If you Mm -hmm. don't practice what you preach, you know, if you don't do what you tell other people to do, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes is be the change that you wish to see in the world. And this is so connected to that. Yeah. Without a doubt. I mean, Gandhi is saying you have control over the world. If you become the change that you want to see in the world as opposed to sitting on the sidelines, Lily, and pointing at other Mm -hmm. people and criticizing them for the world being the way it is. Get Mm -hmm. off the sidelines, get in the game. And that's, of Mm -hmm. course, an important interpretation of that. But it goes even further to this point Mm -hmm. of practicing what you preach. And if you want the world to change, get out Mm -hmm. there and change it. I love that one as well. Great. Thank you. Now, What type of leader 
are you inspired by? Who activates your heart and why? You know what I love? I love people that are stubborn, <laughs> that have a clear vision of what it is they want, that just utterly refuse to allow other people to persuade them to stop. The one that comes mm-hmm. to my mind more often than not, like when I close my eyes and I think of the word leader, I mm-hmm. think of Nelson Mandela. Mm. I don't know everything there awesome. is to know about Nelson Mandela. I'm not saying that he you know, was a perfect person. I'm pretty sure he wasn't. But to go from incarcerated and hungry and powerless to become the president of your country and lead the transformation of your country through a very, very horrible period into a, a period of prosperity. To me, talk about strength of character, talk about strength mm. of vision, um, that's what I think of. Certainly a powerful leader. Now, Ed, you spoke about clear vision, and sometimes that's hard, especially in education, to have a clear vision when there's so much mud in the water. What advice would you give a new leader who's struggling with that? This is a common question. As a coach, I deal with this subject with clients, particularly new clients, but really throughout the relationship, it's asking that very question, where are you going? Mm -hmm. And to dig deeper than the typical superficial responses. And it's not to criticize people, but, you know, Mm -hmm. if you say to someone, how was your weekend? Most people will say, fine, you know, how was yours? And you say, Hmm. mine was good too. Boom, Mm -hmm. and we move off. Now, the truth of the matter is, I didn't really tell you anything about my weekend, nor was I particularly interested in how your weekend was. It was just this formality. It was just this little dance that we did where, you know, we're conditioned by society to say, how are you? Good, 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 and you? Mm -hmm. How's everyone? How's the family? Good. How's yours? Good. And we leave it at the superficial. And so when you ask people, where are you going in life? What are your goals? Again, people will talk about superficial things. I just want to be happy. Mm. I want to be with my family. Okay, great. I don't know anybody whose goal it is not to be happy. Right. But let's dig a little deeper. What does it mean to be happy? And very quickly, Lily, you get people out of a comfortable conversation because they don't understand. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> We're supposed to just leave it at the superficial. How was the movie? Mm-hmm. It was good. Okay, great. And then we leave it. There's no detail. If it's your life, you better have some detail. You have some specifics mm-hmm. about what does it mean to be happy. What does your life look like five years from today, May the 5th, 2022? If you were to watch a movie right now of your life five years from now, what would you want it to show? I'm not joking. I literally mean that. You know, Mm -hmm. what would you want to see your life be like five years from now? I just had this conversation not too long ago with someone. I became a grandfather, right, in the last month. Well, five Mm -hmm. years from now, I want to be taking a walk with a five-year-old grandson. I want to be holding hands, skimming rocks at the beach, or riding on a ride at, a, at an amusement park, or whatever he wants to do. And I want to be that kind of grandfather that's fun to be around. And so, you know, my goals are very specific in that regard. And the same thing with regard to my faith walk, my finances, my wife of 30 years, Linda, my own three children. 
you know, where I want to live, what my work life is going to be like. And it's mm-hmm. sad to say, but it's true. The vast majority of people have no answer to that question. Where do you mm-hmm. want to live in five years? And mm-hmm. so I would challenge any of your listeners to really reflect on what the answers to those questions are. And honestly, why aren't they more specific? And I'll just add one more point to it. And this is the part that sometimes can sting people and even irritate or mm-hmm. offend them. And that is this. Imagine if five years ago, I would have asked you that same question, where do you want to be five years from now? So that brings us back to today. Five Mm -hmm. years ago, would your life today have been a sufficient realization of what your goals would have been five years ago? And again, for Mm -hmm. most people, I rarely, rarely encounter anyone that can speak to any specific goals that they had other than, you know, I want to be married, I want to have children, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, an Indian chief or an astronaut or whatever. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of those little kids, you know, they decide they want to play professional football or they want to be a nurse or whatever. Those are wonderful. Those are great examples. But beyond that... And it takes being intentional and there's a lack of intentionality. You know, I was doing a workshop and this hit home because I do this workshop called the Pyramid Model. And what it is, is to help educators lift the social emotional competencies of the children. So one of the things I asked was, what's a hot button for you? What gets under your skin? And so they're able to identify a hot button. Then the next question is, how do you feel when that happens? And Ed, everybody went to a strategy. It was so difficult for them to even identify an emotion. And so now we're supposed to teach children how to identify these emotions, but we're not walking in that. We're not identifying our own emotions. Yeah, and depending on your family of origin, you'd be just as likely to find a family of origin or a culture in your, you know, where you were raised that discourages mm -hmm. connection with your emotion as you are to find an environment that encourages you to connect. Mm, That's such an important part in the field of education to really connect with how you're feeling. So it does take intentionality. Thank you so much for that advice. Ed, what's the best advice you've ever received? It isn't so much a piece of advice. It was an awareness. I will turn it into advice, but it's very much in alignment, Lily, with what you've been saying. Encourage Mm -hmm. young people. If you follow it down to its source, most of the belief that we generate in ourselves comes from others, meaning it originates in borrowed belief. You know, a sports coach or a parent tells Mm -hmm. you that you are gifted in a particular way, and they set Mm -hmm. high expectations for you. But expectations that you don't necessarily realize are high. They're just telling you that you know how to do it. Right. And then in an incredible illustration of what human capacity is, because people don't know it's impossible, they actually do it. And so for me, my fourth grade teacher, Lucille de Gravio, she pulled aside two students in our class of, I think, 30 or so, all boys school in South Boston, Massachusetts. And she told us both that we were very smart. And I remember being angry with her. And the long and the short of it was, She got permission from my parents to give me extra work. But the way this woman (laughs) did it, I'm telling you, it's funny, but it's so powerful. 
I love he it. got two of us, the other boy and myself, thinking that, number one, it was true, that we were really smart, and that she knew she was an expert. She'd been teaching for 30 years. You know, who are we to challenge her? And because there were two of us, there was a natural competitiveness to us. And so she had us doing all kinds of extra work. And I literally give her credit for this awareness in my mind. And I don't know how much smarter I am than anybody else, but I got this in my head at whatever that age is, 10 years old, 9 years old, that I'm smart. And therefore, I can read. And I can read a lot of stuff. And I can get smarter because my brain works really well. And I remember my brothers, and I have two younger brothers, remember me telling them how smart I was. And where did that come from? It came from that woman and my parents. So plant that seed in children. Tell them their gift. Tell them that their artwork is beautiful. Tell them that their brain works really well. Tell them they have a big heart that they care very much for people, that God has blessed them with great compassion and empathy and listening skills. And that is an amazing gift to others. And when you do that, when you pour into people your belief in them, it quite often manifests itself in their own belief in themselves. Well, that's great. Yeah, educators have this capacity, they can certainly influence the present and the future. That's why we're doing what we're doing, Ed. And the flip side is true, too. It's sad to say, but you can crush someone's self-confidence by labeling them in these negative Mm -hmm. stereotypes and in critical ways. It's criminal Mm -hmm. to take a young person, it doesn't matter how old they are, but it's especially cruel when it's a young person who has some self-belief and confidence, and you do, for whatever reason, you Mm -hmm. bring them down to reality. You think you're gifted, but you're not. What a crime Mm. that is to me. Certainly. And so it's important that we learn to lead ourselves well because we do have an impact on these children. So I appreciate that. Now, Ed, you've been part of teams. You've created teams. What does it mean to have a good team, and how would you build or sustain one? Well, there's lots been written and studied about what makes up a team. And to me, it boils down to three words. And I've thought about this subject a lot, Lily. So I don't want to sound like a blog, but I have blogged upon this. So three very similar words, goals, roles, and rules. So every successful team, political team, business team, sports team, family team, I've yet to hear of a successful team that didn't have this to be true. So the first one Mm -hmm. is the goal, obviously. There's a team goal. There's a well-understood definition of success for the team. Use a sport Mm -hmm. analogy. They're so obvious, you know, in the Super Bowl between the Falcons and the Patriots. Who had the most rushing yards? Who had the most first downs? Who had the least amount of penalties? Well, unless you're Mm -hmm. on one of those two teams, you don't remember. Why? Because there's a well-developed way and well-understood way to understand who wins, and that's the score. And so every team, sports, family, otherwise, needs to understand what the group goal, how are we going to define success? And the second one is roles. What is my specific role? How do I contribute to the achievement of that goal? And the best analogy I know is the family photo. Any type of group photo, you go to a dinner 
with a bunch of old friends. You go to a conference, and they take a photo of some of the people that you were at the conference with. And all of a sudden, you see the photo. Somebody emails you the photo, or you see it on social media. If you're like most people, what's the first thing you look for in the photo? <laughs> Yourself. You look at yourself. I mean, there's no shame in that. That just right. makes you guilty of being a human being. You look mm-hmm. at yourself. And as soon mm-hmm. as you've decided that, hey, I look okay, right? I look okay. Then you can post it, right? Then you can post it, right? Or untag me or, <laughs> or whatever, not. right? Right. But as soon as you've determined that I look okay, then you start to look at other people and you right. assess the photo. And all this to say is not that people are egotistical, but just, it's not a criticism. It just makes you human. If you cannot see yourself in the photo of the team achieving the goal, then you don't understand your role. The best teams, doesn't matter how supposedly insignificant the person is, they understand their role and they own the achievement of the team goal as much as anyone else. So you could be the fourth string punter on a football team and you own the victory just as much as the starting running back or quarterback or whoever might be the supposed face of the team. And then the Mm -hmm. last one is the rules, and that is how do we treat each other? What are the principles? What are the values that we tell the world we're all about? And then back to the point we talked about earlier, do we actually live up to them? I have a client that I've worked with for years and one of their values is not interrupting. That's very rare that you would see a corporation have one of their values as not interrupting. Well, I started working with them. I started going to some of their meetings. One of the first meetings I went to, I realized these people are really interrupting each other a lot. And I wouldn't have necessarily noticed it, except it was on these cards that they gave each other. You know, this was like a new employee orientation thing. These are the things that make us who we are, and we don't interrupt. And then you go to your first meeting, imagine as a new employee, and you hear people interrupting each other. What does that (laughs) say about the overall culture? So you better have some rules of engagement. So to me, goals, roles, rules is the formula for a winning team. Just in that little story, you said something that was so powerful because oftentimes we've written things down as a value, and yet it's not what you really value. It's just something you wrote down. And that tends to happen a lot in organizations and in schools as well. You have these nice signs that say your mission or your vision, but you're not espousing that. You're not walking in that. It's ridiculous, right? Just what you noticed. This was a value, and yet they weren't living it out. Right. And if it's not a value, that's fine. Don't say it's a value. Our good friend, Paul Martinelli, he didn't introduce this concept, but he's the one that introduced it to me. But he said, your priorities show up in two places, your calendar and your checkbook. And again, the quick illustration is, you know, and you ask people, what are your priorities? What are your priorities? 95% of people will say family, whether it is or it isn't. It's just a societal norm that you have to say it. And if you don't say it, people will take notice. Like, why are you not saying your family? Right. You're supposed to say family. But to your right. point, if you say it, show me your calendar. Where is your family in your calendar? 
Mm-hmm. I've had this conversation now hundreds of times. I, you know, I love my family every day. Okay. I'm not asking you if you love your family every day. My specific question is, where is your family in your calendar? If you're in a loving relationship, a committed relationship with someone, you know, I've been married for 30 years. Linda and I have date night once <laughs> every two weeks. We go out on a date just like we did when we were not married. I have three adult children. But when they were teenagers, and even now, one of them lives in California, so it makes it harder, but we have a dinner once a month. Our family has a meal together, but I have a meal with each one of my kids, one at a time, one a month. And again, it sounds silly to people or trivial. It's not. And it Mm. lives out that question, where does your family exist in your calendar? I can show you my calendar. This is when I'm going to have dinner with my son, David. This is when I'm going to have dinner with my son, Brian. This is when Laura. And here's date Mm. night, Linda. In fact, when I first started Mm. putting in my calendar, I got in trouble because this is a funny story. At least it was funny at the time. I had in my calendar a recurring appointment that said date night with Linda. And in a moment of somewhat less than clarity, I showed my wife. I'm like, look, it's in my calendar. She was shocked. She's looking at on my phone, on my calendar app, in my phone, date night with Linda, date night with Linda. And she said, Lily, and I'll never forget, she looked at me and she says, why do you have to put Linda? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what, what? Yeah. Why do you have to be specific about Linda? Who else would you be having a date night with? Oh, my God. Okay. All right. So now it's date night with my honey. Now it just says date night. Date night. There's no clarification required. There's only one person I go out on a date night with, and that's Linda. But you get the point. And I've had clients that have literally created date night with their spouse, men and women, Mm -hmm. regular interactions by phone or face-to-face with their adult children to Mm -hmm. reestablish that recurring connection. As anyone listening to this discussion knows what an impact that has on people when you show up regularly in their life. For sure. And, Ed, it's real clear how much you value your family. Um, It's all over Facebook, and that's how I know that you're a new grandfather, and you always speak about your wife. So that's real clear. Now, you mentioned a blog. If our listeners wanted to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Oh, just Google my name. You'll find my YouTube channel, my LinkedIn profile, you know, my Facebook pages, or go to eddacosta.com. Great. Thank you so much. Now, can you tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it has shaped your life? Oh, I'm going through it right now. Unlike anything I've ever experienced, and I don't actually know anybody that has experienced this, or maybe they have, but I am just unaware of it. Three and a half weeks ago, you know, my grandson was born. And of course, Mm -hmm. I already talked about it. It's a time of incredible joy and, and happiness and celebration. Four days after this little boy was born, my mother passed away. Oh, she had been suffering from sorry cancer. Sorry to hear that. Mm. And thank you for, for that. And it was very much long mm-hmm. expected. So we knew it was coming. She knew it was coming. And I'm not fully processed it yet, but my brothers and my other family members and I have chosen to look at it this way, that this little boy came early mm-hmm. because he knew his great-grandmother was waiting for him. She was holding on. She was clinging, Mm. waiting for this little boy 
So he did his part, and then she waited, and she hung on, and she was heavily medicated, and she struggled. And so the challenge is when people say wonderful things to you, like congratulations on the birth of your grandson, and again, it's a joyous thing. I mean, I'm not complaining about it. It's a wonderful thing when people remind you and tell you how happy they are for you Mm -hmm. and for your family. It's great. And also when, just like you did, when they offer mm-hmm. condolences and sympathies and they say, well, I'll pray for you. I'll continue to you know, keep your mm-hmm. my thoughts and prayers. That's wonderful. Here's the point. These are opposites right. of one another. You know, right. One is the highest of highs and the other is the lowest of lows. Right? To lose someone that you love dearly, someone extremely close to you like a mother, and to gain mm-hmm. this little bundle of joy who's part of your family. You talk about the circle of life. It's not a right, Disney right. movie. It's real. And so I'm still working through, you know, how do I reconcile the simultaneous existence of these two very, very different emotions and stay productive and keep doing good work for my clients and and stay positive and upbeat, recognizing that even though it hurts, you know, people Mm -hmm. die every day. Every day you open that newspaper, depending on where you live, there are people in there. And we're not studying mm-hmm. the obituaries every day. We're not. You know, if we see a name we recognize, someone that was a friend or a family member of a friend, of course we might reach out in some way, but it doesn't significantly impact our life. But when mm-hmm. it happens to us, we realize that every single day people are going through joy and pain and sometimes mm-hmm. at the very same time. So mm-hmm. that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And just like the rest of us, if you don't quit, you know, the game's not over. So keep playing. And thank you so much for sharing your heart. It was really heartfelt, and I appreciate that. You're welcome. Can you tell us of one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped your life? Oh, certainly. It's got to be becoming a member of the faculty on the John Maxwell team. I've had lots of successes, but when I got the opportunity to interview with John to become a member of his faculty, this is seven years ago, I'm a confident person, and I'm not afraid of anybody, and I'm not easily intimidated. But Lily, you know, Mm -hmm. I had a lump in my throat. I was (laughs) confident, but I didn't know John. I knew his persona. I'd watched him on TV. I'd seen him on videos, and I'd listened to and read several of his books and listened to one of his books on audio. And so I thought I had a good sense of who the man was, but I didn't know for sure. And it turned out to be just an unbelievable conversation. And again, in hindsight, now that he's a friend, you know, and I know him pretty well and he knows me very well, it was kind of silly for me to be that nervous. But, you know, the fact that I flew down to Florida and met with him and I wasn't afraid to answer any questions. I was terrified, for example, that he was going to give me a quiz on the Bible. (laughs) What? is an evangelical preacher for 40 years and he is going to quiz me on Leviticus and I'm going to have to tell him I don't know and that'll be the end. You know, and that's funny in hindsight. But at the right. time, you know, I just thought, oh, please, God, if he asks me questions, give me the answer, please. That's funny. You know, I was thinking about the first time I learned of you was when I became a member of the John Maxwell team. I think it was 2015. And the first time I met John, too, he was on stage and he said, my name is John and I'm your friend. But do you remember what you said? Of course. I will never say it from the stage again. I meant it 
as a joke. Right. And about 50% of the audience didn't think I was joking. And I said, hi, my name is Ed, and I'm not your friend. Right. I meant that I'm going to help you overcome self-limiting beliefs, that I'm right. going to help you achieve things that are beyond what you believe that right. you're capable of. And so I'm not going to be your friend in that sense of the word friend. You're not going to coddle exactly. us. Exactly. Lily, that's right. exactly it. Honestly, I don't know what the percentages are, but a good half of the people laughed. They immediately right. laughed, which told me they get it. I'm joking. But, you know, Honestly, I got I've that message. So many approached me afterwards and said, what, you know, what have I done to you that I'm not your friend? <laughs> what? No, what you know you what, Ed, about? I, Right. I got that message that you weren't going to coddle us. And right. I really appreciated that. But I haven't heard you say it since. And it's only because of that. It, and and right. again, you've got 3,000 people in the room. Right. And if you say something you think is funny, and even if 100 of the people are offended mm-hmm. right. and are now intimidated by you, and they paid to get into this program, and now one of their mentors has said something that now they're afraid to speak mm. to him. You know, that's right. just not what I'm all about. That was a, a realization that I came to mm-hmm. with the help of some others. We'll put it that Great. way. Great. Thanks for sharing that. I appreciate that. You're very um, Now, as many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners, what does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? Oh, wow. I'm learning a lot. I'm learning about being a grandfather, obviously. I'm learning about Mm -hmm. living on the road. You know, my business travel has increased significantly. I'm learning how to help organizations overcome political turf wars. And again, we've all heard of political turf wars. We might have been involved in some, and we all know about the stereotypical playing politics at work. But imagine if your goal is to help expose those turf wars and to get both sides playing together and beyond sitting them in a room and giving them a goals, roles, and rules lecture, which, Mm -hmm. frankly, no matter how profound you think it is, it's not going to have these two rivals. You know, more often than not, it's driven by two significant players in a company that don't Mm -hmm. like each other and they're rivals of each other. So one Mm -hmm. lecture no matter who you are, it's not going to change the long-standing pattern of behavior. So I'm learning about how to complement one-on-one coaching, which I've been doing for a long time, with Mm -hmm. some, for lack of a better term, group interventions. I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor, or any of those things, but to bring people in a room and to be, as we talked about earlier, be candid Mm -hmm. and say, listen, do you care more about yourselves or do you care more about the organization? And if you tell me that you care more about the organization, recognize before you say those words, that means you're going to have to stop some of the nonsense. And if you immediately point and say, well, he's got to stop first, you're missing the point. Mm -hmm. And so I'm learning and I'm reading a lot about people who Mm -hmm. do mediation and crisis leadership intervention to help companies get through tough times. Sometimes they're tough times that happen from the outside, but quite often those tough times that a company is going through, the source of it is the inside. You know, certainly in education that happens, and because everybody's so busy, they don't give it that time that certainly something like that needs. You, you, and I'll so, just add one thing. It's sure. similar to the practice what you preach 
point that we've mm-hmm. already talked about. It's easy to say that you are willing to change your behavior. It's quite different to do it, to actually change your behavior. And so it's challenging people at the front end to say, all right, listen, you've said it, and that's wonderful. That's the first step, like the the 12-step process in AA or NA, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. You know, you've got to stand up and acknowledge. But that's just the very beginning of the journey where the rubber hits the road, so to speak, is when the set of circumstances comes up again where you normally would lash out and play politics. Do you have alternative mm-hmm. strategies developed so that when that moment comes, you don't do it? Just a quick example. I have a good mm-hmm. friend that has a cross hanging from his rearview mirror. His cross was a gift from his wife because mm-hmm. he had the habit of cursing other people on the road. A radical notion, getting road rage or irritation, and they'll say things, sometimes with other people in the car, that they would otherwise never say. And so his wife got him conditioned to, if somebody cut him off, instead of saying or yelling or making hand gestures, he got into the habit of reaching up his right hand and holding that cross just momentarily and just Mm -hmm. asking for peace. Just give me peace. Let me replace one habitual behavior with a new habitual behavior. And so this is something that I think many people could learn from. If you want to stop smoking, you need to have something go to, a piece of gum or or something Mm -hmm. that you do when you get that craving or that urge to do the behavior that you want to minimize or remove. So intentionality and practice, practice, practice. You got it, Lily. Great. So, Ed, I know you read a lot. What have you read that our listeners should read and why? Huh. Well, would it be too self-serving if I uh, talked about my <laughs> Your book? Tell us. I've written a couple. You can look it up on Amazon. In fact, if you go to my website, you'll see them. I won't mention them. But I'm actually reading a book called The Coaching Manager right now, mm-hmm. which is quite good. And again, it's Mm -hmm. very similar to the concepts that we've talked about on this call, but in the context of helping someone who doesn't view themselves necessarily as a leader, but views Mm -hmm. themselves as a manager. Think about Mm -hmm. the last time you saw a business card that had the word leader on it. Very rare. Most of the time, it's some technical description of what it is they do. Then it will say supervisor manager, director, vice president, area director, administrator. Very infrequently do you hear the word leader. And so Mm -hmm. there are many people, through no fault of their own, it's just, hey, the world has called you a manager. Mm -hmm. I'm a manager. I manage the department. Okay, so you lead the department. No, no, I don't lead it. I'm the manager. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, we're not arguing semantics here. Management and leadership are two very different things. And so this book, our two authors, James Hunt and Joseph Weintraub, are talking about helping someone who's viewed themselves as a manager for a long time start to view themselves not just as a leader, but also as a coach. That's great. The coaching manager, wonderful. Um, And you know, Ed, in business, coaching is very popular or known 
in education, we don't really use coaches, which is unfortunate. I think it's changing somewhat. People are starting to kind of open up to what coaching is. Can you give us a quick description of what coaching is for educators? Sure. There is a model that many teachers are familiar with called Socratic method after the Greek philosopher Socrates. And the telltale sign of a Socratic lecturer, a Socratic teacher, and I am also an adjunct professor at West Virginia University. I teach in the MBA program and I teach leadership and entrepreneurship and marketing. But it's a dialogue between the teacher and the students that's prompted by questions from the teacher. You know, the stereotypical view where the teacher has all the answers. The coach and the Socratic teacher knows that if you really want to pour into that audience, or in the case of the teacher, that classroom, you'll ask them provocative questions and allow them to think and to analyze and to discover what their answers are, as opposed mm -hmm. to simply regurgitating the facts, so to speak, of right. what it is you've told them about the subject at hand. And so mm -hmm. I think for any teacher that wants to be more coach-like, I would start with the Socratic method of teaching. And even to the point where you prompt the class prior to the classroom discussion with the questions because, again, depending on the university, depending on the age of the students, most may not do much preparation for the class time, but invariably some will. Tell them, these are the questions I'm going to ask you guys. It's not a pop quiz. I'm just going to ask you, what are your thoughts on this subject? And let's have a rational conversation about it. You think about the political situation in the United States. I mean, every day, every week, there's something worthy of conversation. And again, mm -hmm. you can have very strong views on one side and some very intelligent person have strong views on the other side. But if you facilitate the respectful sharing of ideas, boy, you're pouring into those young people more than any lecture on a particular subject can. Great. Thank you. Now, you're a coach for executives, correct? Yes, ma'am, I am. How important is it for leaders in education to have coaches in their lives? Yeah, whether it's called a coach or not, I think you need mm -hmm. someone that is a confidential sounding board that you can share information with, share you know, some successes and to leverage those successes, to share any frustrations or failures that you've had. And again, in a safe, non-threatening way so that you can learn from them, as we've heard a million times. You know, John Maxwell wrote a couple of books precisely on this subject. He wrote Failing Forward. That's all about how we learn most, you know, when we make a mistake. We reflect. We learn from our mistakes. And then he wrote Sometimes You Win. Sometimes you learn. If you look at the book, it says sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But the word lose is crossed out, and it says learn over top of it. And again, it's a modern version of the same principle, and that is to study the things that you've done poorly so that you don't make the same mistakes, don't repeat the sins of the past, right? The old historians say those that don't study the mistakes of the past are doomed to repeat them. So whether you call it mentor or a coach, or an advisor, or your boss, or the associate dean, or whatever the title is. It really doesn't matter, but it's the method. It's someone who is there for you, 
whose sole purpose is to help you get better, not by telling you what to do, but by asking you powerful questions and facilitating your discovery of what you can do and how you can show up in a more effective way. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. I believe mm -hmm. that people will benefit immensely from it. And frankly, I think people that don't have coaches, again, regardless of the title, I think they struggle because of the absence of that kind of person in their life. And also, I think their organizations struggle because if mm -hmm. they don't benefit from coaching themselves, how can they really be passionate about creating a coaching culture in the organization if they don't have any firsthand experience. Thank you so much for that. Now, Ed, you have a lot of responsibilities. So what do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? Sure. This is right out of a lot of uh, not official mentors because I don't necessarily know them, but a guy named David Allen wrote a book probably 20 years ago or more called Getting mm -hmm. Things Done. Probably 40 years ago, a guy named Stephen Covey wrote a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That mm -hmm. book I've read probably more than any other book. And begin with the end in mind and being proactive and putting first things first. Those are three. Folks, if you haven't read The Seven Habits, please read them. You can download mm -hmm. the audio book and listen to it, put it on in the car, listen to it while you work out. I can't get enough of it. It's just powerful mm -hmm. stuff. And so based upon the teachings of a lot of people that are very productive and very effective, I use something every day that helps me hone in on my priorities. Mm -hmm. And I've got it available on my website. It costs nothing. I give it away. Uh, it's called The Daily Edge. And I have it. Yeah. So it's just my method. Lily, I didn't develop it initially for anybody else. It was just my own thing. In fact, I've joked about it. The first version of The Daily Edge that I had, one of my priorities each and every day pre-printed on there said Linda. And one of my coaching clients asked me if he could use my daily edge. So I <laughs> sent him by email the PDF of my daily edge. And this guy's a friend now, this is years ago, and he's a clown. He called me and said, Ed, you know, it says here, Linda. So what exactly <laughs> do you want me to do with Linda? <laughs> like, that's yeah, my Linda daily on edge. his calendar. Yes, you that's can take funny. Linda off your calendar and put your wife's name on your calendar. Again, this is all mm -hmm. about being proactive and beginning with the end in mind. It's the breaking it down into little steps, which is a fundamental principle of any productive person. You've got to set big goals, big vision, but then get started. You know, John Maxwell, 21 Irrefutable Laws. He talks about the law of the big mo. Nothing gets you going like moving. Get started quickly because as soon mm -hmm. as you do step one, part of our human nature is far more interested now in step two than we were before we did step one. And so this is just my way of defining success at the beginning of every day. And then at the end of the day, I get to look and give myself a score. You know, how did I do awesome. today? Great. Okay. So, and if you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Discretion. Discretion discretion, mm -hmm. just because you think it, just because you feel it, doesn't mean you need to say it. And after the fact, it's always yes. funny, you know, right. the things, you know, kids say the darndest things and all that. But man, I said some things to people that were just flat out rude. 
And I did it with this false notion of me being authentic. I was just mm. being real. I've joked, I still have a tweet that I put up every once in a while where George Washington famously said, you know, I cannot tell a lie. Well, it's just my own sense of humor, and some of you don't get it, and that's fine. Just don't hate me for it. But I have this image of George and Martha Washington getting ready in the morning. And George mm-hmm. is putting on his wig, getting ready to go. Again, this is totally fabricated in my own mind. And Martha comes up to her husband, and she says, "Do these pants make my butt look fat. And George Washington, thinking, well, I cannot tell a lie, he says, it has nothing to do with the pants. Okay? Oh, snap. <laughs> so, again, I probably lost some of the people in the group. Forgive me. I'm not a jerk. I'm just saying... In answer to your question, what would I say to myself if I could go back 30 years to a 20-year-old or 22-year-old me or 40 years to a teenager me? I would say, hey, be really careful about what comes out of your mouth. Right. Because once you've said it, you've said it. And if the damage gets done, you may never be able to undo it. You're better off not saying it than saying it. That's great advice. Thank you so much. So is there anything that we haven't addressed that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think we've touched on the major principles, and I'm sure this has come up in many of your other episodes. People think that servant leaders don't serve themselves, and that's a myth. You absolutely should be a servant leader, and I use the example of most moms at Thanksgiving. You know, they've got a house full of people. They're running around like crazy, making sure, you know, everybody's got all that they need. And yet it's not till the end of the day that they finally grab a piece of turkey mm-hmm. for themselves. Mm-hmm. And right. so I'm not criticizing servant leadership. But what I am saying is it is not selfish for you to serve yourself because what good are you to others if right. you are not healthy? That's absolutely right. But don't be a martyr. Don't starve yourself because if you starve yourself, you're not going to be as valuable and as able to serve those that are relying upon you. Great. Ed, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Lily, thank you for doing this. I commend you for taking the action necessary and for reaching out as you did. And I'm delighted to be part of your team and helping serve your audience. So anytime, really very much. I appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day. Take care, everybody. Okay, you too. Bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. And although it's been around for centuries, coaching to develop effective leadership skills is fairly new to education and grossly underutilized. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.